at those early stages. If you want to have a scalable business, this isn't just accounting, but if you want to have a scalable business, I think it takes a lot of effort in the beginning to be able to reap the rewards later. And I had just turned 27 and we now had 15 employees after the acquisitions. It was very different. There was people that were older than me who were 15 years more experienced, but that were answering to me as the owner to your comment earlier, work-life balance was a term that was not really used in my home life for those few years. How did you decide to go ahead and acquire some gyms? I mean, do you already have a six pack and you wanted to work on that or what? <laughs> you know, my wife was looking to do something different. I'm John Bly, 39 years old, and I'm the founder of LBA Haynes Strand. We're a CPA firm, and I'm located in Charlotte, North Carolina. We've got three offices here in North Carolina. The other two offices are in Mount Airy, which is just north of Winston-Salem, and we've got an office in Greensboro. And how long have you been an accountant? Since 2002, since graduating from graduate school. So first job out of college was in accounting. You decided you want to study accounting in college? Yeah, actually, I decided as a little kid, I had a paper route as a little kid and had to collect, you know, you had to do the weekly collection, monthly collection, you had to pay the paper company in those days, and it was on you to collect. And so that debits and credits and investing and things got me into it at a very young age. And you worked in an accounting firm right when you graduated. And are you from the North Carolina area? I'm originally from Albany, New York, and I worked for PricewaterhouseCoopers, large big four accounting firm straight out of grad school up in the Boston area and had them transfer me down to Charlotte, North Carolina. How's your story a little bit different? Because I know when we first started talking, I was just a little bit weird because I'm like, oh, it's an accountant coming on. And most of the accountants <laughs> are not want to talk as much and maybe as maybe you do. <laughs> Yeah, so I think my story is a little bit different in the fact that first, having left the big four at a young age, starting my own firm, that's a little bit unusual. But second, and makes it significantly different, is the fact that we've done 13 acquisitions in the 14 years since I founded the firm. So we've grown a lot in a very different, inorganic way. And that's something that many accountants just aren't doing. They're not looking at that entrepreneurial spirit. They're not looking to grow their company. They're just looking to serve clients and I'm focused on it more from a business aspect and the entrepreneurial journey for myself. I'm familiar with the big four, but could you just tell us about like working at one of these big four companies? And then you said you started even off at a younger age, starting your own accounting firm. Yeah. So the big four is a great experience. I don't have anything bad to say, except it's a lot of work. It's a lot of effort. And what I found for me wasn't the fit is I thought maybe the partnership track and being a partner at one of those big four firms was like the pinnacle. It was like the peak of a career in the accounting profession. And what I found out very early on was that if you were a partner at those big four firms, you were really just another employee. You just happened to have the word partner after your name. And that meant that you didn't get a lot of decision-making control. You didn't get a lot of entrepreneurial spirit. And so that to me, you know, in that first couple of years, I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers was the point where I decided it was time to make a change. How old were you when you decided to make a change on that? I was 25 when I started our firm. And so I was pretty young. Yeah. I mean, that's super young. It's almost like a lawyer who wants to start their own law firm at 25 to already be at that age and be able to, to do that. You'd have only been working <laughs> at PricewaterhouseCooper, what, for a couple of years? Yeah. I'd been working there about three years. For me, it was just too much. It was too much time and too much bureaucracy, if you will. It just didn't really fit my personality. I like to be able to call my own shots and be able to come and go as I please and do the things that really excite me about client service. And the clients that we served were so big, it was really challenging to make an impact for them. Whereas the clients that we served as soon as I left and started my own firm were small to mid-sized businesses and startups. And I felt like I really had an impact on those people's lives. 
So tell us about when you decided to quit. Again, this is pretty young to be able to start your own company and especially in the accounting profession. Like how much money did you have saved up? And what did you tell your boss when you decided you wanted to leave? <laughs> so I didn't have that much saved up, actually. I only had about 50,000 saved up. And I told my boss that I was leaving to start my own firm. And I think he thought it was a joke. <laughs> he sort of smiled and I said, you know, hey, and unfortunately, one of my clients is following me and they're going to leave Pricewaterhouse and join me. And then I think he took it a little bit more seriously. Hmm. And we still cross paths and we're still friendly. But I think even then we had had a few people leave the previous few years for, I'll say, entrepreneurial type stuff. And a lot of them had come back or taken jobs a year or two later. So I think he fully expected me to stumble or fail or really struggle those first couple of years and see me back in the marketplace. So I'm fortunate enough not to have had that as the story. How do you work with that? Like when you're dealing with that client, did you tell your client that you're going to go start your own accounting firm and that they were just on board with you? Like, how does that work? That's a good question. In this particular case, we had been having discussions about for six months or so, and they had wanted me actually to come in-house. They really enjoyed the way I thought about their business, not just their accounting and taxes, but that I was more advisory. And so they were trying to bring me on in-house. And I told them, you know, that I, that's not really the route I'm looking to go. And I said, eventually, I'll probably have my own firm based on what I'm looking at and what I see in front of me for a career path at the big four. And we continued those discussions on and off over a six-month period before I finally made the break. And they immediately said, yeah, we'd love to be with you rather than a big firm. That's a good stepping stone because whenever you're going to leave there, at least you didn't have like zero clients and had no idea of what you wanted to do. It was a good kind of transition to know someone was on board with you if you're going to go start your own company. Yes. And right away, we shortly thereafter acquired a very, very small firm, really only two firms in a 30-day period that were less than 100000 in revenue combined. So very tiny, very small, but provided us at least a small amount of clients that gave us some credibility in the marketplace, gave us some referral sources. Again, not enough to make a living, but enough to have a baseline to start with. Oh, I mean, this already seems like a lot at age 25. Yes. Not only are you starting your own company, but now you're talking about acquiring other companies 30 days afterwards. Yep. You know, looking back, we didn't have kids at the time. I was married and my wife and I started this journey together and she's a CPA and we just felt like it was the right move for us. And if we had it to do over again, maybe I'd be more scared now. But at the time, I think I was young and naive and thought it would be really easy. And of course, it hasn't always been easy, but it definitely was easier than people think it is. So you and your wife started your own accounting firm, but you all did it together? Yep. So yeah, you did that. And then how did you even know how to acquire another accounting firm during those days? I wouldn't even know what to do, much less, especially when you're starting off your new company. Yeah, you know, it's funny. And of course, it's not that long ago. It's only 2004, but this is like pre-Google, right? I mean, it's pre-iPhone and all that. So what's funny is I was literally reading the Journal of Accountancy, which is the trade magazine for accountants that the AICPA puts out on a monthly basis. And in the back was a classified ad. And that's what got me thinking maybe about a year before I left. This got me thinking. In the classified ads, there was actually a listings from brokers that sell small accounting firms. And I thought, oh my gosh, I didn't even know an accounting firm would be for sale. That thought had never crossed my mind to that point. And that really turned me on to there is a possibility of doing this on my own. And I don't necessarily have to start immediately from scratch if I can find something small that's available for sale. So was that part of your thought process, even when you're leaving the firm, you're like, hey, I want to go ahead and acquire another small accounting firm because then at least they'll have some structure in place? Yeah, it was and exactly right. It, it provided some structure, it provided some clients, and it provided some referral sources and some credibility in the marketplace. And all of those things seemed easier to start with at least a little bit rather than starting from zero and building it all 
And again, I guess it's all about risk mitigation, right? Whenever you're an entrepreneur and especially coming from an accountant background, if you're thinking that way, you're like, they're going to have some clients, something in place. So you don't have to do everything from scratch. Because if you're coming from, I know we said the big four, but basically there's four big accounting firms at the time, right? That you, yes. most accountants wanted to go work for right afterwards. And I imagine they were super structured to an extent that, <laughs> you know, you obviously wanted to do your own thing, but at least acquiring a small one, you don't have to go find out all these nuances of a small business. If you can at least acquire one and understand what they do, what did they bring to the table when you acquired them? The good thing that they brought was they brought at least some software, for instance, right? So they had already made some decisions about which accounting software to use, which tax software to use, how they build their clients, what the pricing structure was. Now, that didn't mean I had to live with it, and I certainly did not for very long. But it allowed me a baseline to say, okay, this is what, because you're going from the big four who have 200,000 employees down to starting from scratch. It's a big jump. And clearly, the clients that we serve are very different at that point. And so the pricing is very different. And it was much easier to learn from somebody that we were acquiring and how they had been doing it the last handful of years and the pricing structure and the software they used than starting from scratch. Were there like older accountants? Because again, you're pretty young at this age. I don't know, like, what's that like if you're acquiring a company and the people working for you might be older and there's an issue there? Yeah. So the, it is interesting. The first two that we acquired were one was not, he was switching careers. He was probably in his early forties and was switching careers. He decided after 15 years in practice, he wanted to do something different. The other one was a little bit older, you know, but not old, certainly early fifties. And again, was doing something different. But to your point, the interesting one was about a year later, we acquired a much larger firm and it was a 65 year old that was retiring and inherited a handful of employees. And it was a challenge. I definitely did as much as I could to make myself look older, feel older, act older. Because at this time, I was 27. I had just turned 27. And we now had 15 employees after the acquisitions. It was very different. There was people that were older than me who were 15 years more experienced, but that were answering to me as the owner. Yeah. Well, we'll go kind of year by year chronologically, if that's okay, about your growing. Sure. Especially interesting because I just imagine that most accountants would be older. That's why I was so impressed that like if you're 25 starting off, you know, your own accounting firm. But how about the first year? Let's talk about by the end of the first year, you acquired two different accounting companies. Like how many people were there and were you making a net profit the first year? Yeah. So in 2004, we acquired a couple of really small ones and by the end of that year, it was late in the year, we acquired it in Q4. So there wasn't really any employees with my wife and I working out of our house for almost the first 18 months, building and working <laughs> like any entrepreneurial story, working a ridiculous amount of hours. I think that first year, I think people think the entrepreneurial journey is always easy. I think that first two years, I worked a little over 3,000 hours a year. So, you know, 60, 70 hour weeks year round. Wow. And were you able to make a net profit on those first couple of years? Yep. Replaced my income and my wife's income from our W-2 jobs at big firms easily within the first six months. And then by a year in, we were ahead of that pace, actually. We were ahead of what we were making at the big four. Now, it didn't come easy. Like I said, lots of hard work. But with that, the small acquisitions, it gave us the baseline and we were able to make that grow fast. Fundrise is the future of real estate investing. See, with Fundrise, you can invest in million-dollar deals without writing million-dollar checks. And this level of real estate investing was previously only reserved for the wealthiest investors. Fundrise enables you to instantly access high-quality, high-potential real estate projects from the high-rises in D.C. to multifamily apartments in L.A. So getting high with Fundrise will actually be one of the best decisions you ever made. Oh, and by high, we mean you'll have access to highly vetted real estate projects 
that are managed by Fundrise's team of real estate professionals. With Fundrise, you now have the benefit of investing in real estate's consistent cash flow and long-term appreciation without all the headaches that come with managing a property yourself. They make it easy to inspect every project in your portfolio and will keep you updated on each project's progress in real time. So give the future of real estate investing a try today. Go to fundrise.com slash millionaire. That's fundrise, F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com forward slash millionaire to have your first three months of fees waived. And that link is available in your episode notes below. And don't forget, by clicking the link in our episode notes, you help me and my team. Thank you for supporting the show by checking out our advertisers so they can help financially support our podcast. And I'm just thinking of a mindset shift for you. Like if you were just quote unquote accountant before, that's all you were doing at one of the bigger firms. But it seems like when you're starting your own company, you have to switch your mindset where maybe you're working so much more because you have to go out and find new clients, right? <laughs> yes. When you're a small entrepreneur, no matter if it's accounting or whatever it is, what's funny that you don't realize when you're in a really small business, especially in startup phase, you are sales, marketing, product delivery, you're the administrative assistant. I mean, you're everything. And so you're doing all of those things at once. And to your point, you do have to go out and continue to business develop or the business never grows. Especially again, it's your background as an accountant. Most of them are a little bit more timid, if you will. And I would just imagine the whole mindset shift of maybe half the day you're spending accounting, the other half you're doing all these other things. You sound like obviously you're working a lot. <laughs> there wasn't much work-life balance, but what were a few things in those first few years that really helped to that growth looking back now? Yeah, looking back now, it was the fact that I was willing to work really hard. To your point, there was, let's say I worked about 3,200 hours, let's call it 60 hours a week, just for easy math. I would say 30 to 40 of those were truly client delivery. It was talking to our current clients, doing tax returns, doing accounting work, things like that. The rest, and many people would stop right there and say, okay, this is fine. But that was not the MO for me. It was, okay, the rest was spent networking with bankers, networking with attorneys, playing golf with prospects, doing all of those extra things at nights, breakfasts, lunches, weekends, whatever it took to get in front of people who could potentially refer us business, do business with us, help us grow, find strategic alliances, all those sorts of things. And to me, that was laying sort of the foundational groundwork for you know the growth we've had over the last 13 years. Looking back, would you do anything differently? And was it worth it all, at least in those first few years? I think it was definitely worth it. I'm not sure I'd do anything differently because it sort of turned me into who I am today, if that makes sense. And to me, it's, I've done every job at the firm, essentially. I've run payroll. I've gone to the bank and made deposits. You know, I've done it all. We have a team of 75 now. It helps me understand what they do because at some point I did that job. The whole time were you in North Carolina? Because I know we had talked about you moving down there at some point. Yes. The whole time with the firm, I've been in the Charlotte area as the starting point before we expanded into other North Carolina territories, but moved down with PricewaterhouseCoopers prior to starting my own firm. After the first couple of years, let's say two or three years, what are we at as far as business growth and you know employee count and how's everything going so far? So we started in 04. 2006 was the big pivot point for us. We went, as any good entrepreneur does, they look forward and they try to envision what it could be like. And in the summer of 2005, we put some money in a project to build our own office space. Small, just a handful of us trying to think what it would be like in a year and a half when the project was done. 
and this was in August of 05, by December of 06, when the project was done and ready to be delivered, we had gone from two of us full-time to 18 people. And so sort of explosive growth in 18 months. And that was done through two decent size acquisitions. We went from doing just the two of us to almost, I guess it was 15 full-time, 18 total people and doing nearly 1.6 million in revenue almost overnight, if you will. And this has to be a huge transition because I imagine when you're starting off, when you're grinding and doing all those hours with you and your wife, and maybe you have a couple other assistants that are working for you, it's a totally different mindset than like once you have that many 18 people merging cultures and thinking that way and how to communicate with everybody. I mean, were there any difficulties with dealing with that? There were definitely challenges because you went from, I'll say, quote unquote, mom and pop working out of our house to, you know, something that's now a sustainable business. It's got a lot more people and families that you're feeding and the leadership style has to change. It has to be more managerial. You have to motivate teams. You've got to get people excited about where we're headed. And at the same time, you also have to transition some of those client relationships because some of the clients that you used to do X, Y, or Z for, well, now some of your time is spent managing people and so can't always be the face of each client specifically. And there's sort of multiple transitions happening all at once. Was that difficult for you? It was. I think 2006, seven, and eight, those three years as we absorbed that, because it was some of it was late 2006, when we absorbed those acquisitions, it really challenged me because at, at 2006, I was still only 27 years old. And it caused me to really reflect and say, okay, what kind of a leader do I want to be? How do I get involved in other things that make me a better leader? Because at this point, I could tell that we were just beginning the journey of growth. And I felt like we had a lot of opportunities in front of us. I now understood that this was a clear path through mergers and acquisitions that could help us do a lot of things that could help us grow as a firm, but also help our clients because we could add more specialties, more expertise. I spent a lot of time right as we roll into the end of 2007, the beginning of 2008, I really got engrossed in reading and trying to become a better leader. Yeah, because then at this point, I guess, like you were saying, the reflection point is in the beginning, you were trained to be an accountant. And now it's time to basically, you kind of have to let that go if you're going to go ahead and expand in other roles, right? Absolutely. Yep. And you become more of a business management, entrepreneur, operations. You got to focus on all those things. So we've been talking about a lot of these mergers and acquisitions. I mean, can we take a step back and tell us like how you evaluate looking at one of these? It's funny when you said you look at the back of a paper. I still remember when I was at college. The first time seeing like all these businesses for sale through business brokers, I'm like, I didn't know you could like buy businesses like that. But for at least an accounting firm, like how do you go about trying to acquire one? Are you sending them just like an email or talking to people? And then how do you actually end up valuing one and deciding how to get one of these acquisitions done? Now, today, if you will, we're looking at we direct mail about 100 letters every six months We've to competitors in the marketplace in areas that we want to be. So specialty areas or in specific cities that we're looking to grow into. We are definitely doing that today. We're also out in the market telling bankers, attorneys, other accountants, hey, look, if you know somebody who's looking to get out or retire or do something different, we would have interest in having a discussion. So we're very proactive in the approach today to finding targets for the M&A, not just using business brokers, although we certainly still use that as one component. And then when we're evaluating, we're looking at what the client base looks like. Does it match up with ours? What types of services do they provide? Does their pricing look similar? And then what do those employee base look like? Do they fit culturally? Because to me, culture is number one in the thing. You can make other things work, but if culture doesn't fit in a merger, it becomes really painful very quickly. I understand how you're marketing and try to get them in the door. 
And let's say they do meet some of those criteria because maybe someone's listening right now. They're in a different industry, but they want to acquire a competitor or do something similar to you. Other than looking at the culture, the employees, the kind of client base, like how do you go about proposing how much to offer them? And like, how are you trying to offer them money? Is it over time or is it just all at once? Just kind of walk us through how at least you do it with the accounting firms. Sure. So we typically look at what the person wants out of it. So we try to be very fair about the process because the reality is their clients are people they've dealt with for years and they have a close-knit relationship with. If we do something that leaves the seller, the old accountant, in a bad light, they're likely to tell their clients about it on the golf course or at church or at their kid's school or whatever. You try to be as fair as possible. And many of our discussions start with what do they want out of the transaction? Maybe not value necessarily because that we can beat up and have a great discussion on. But as it relates to, do they want out immediately? Do they want to work out over time? Do they want to spend five years and then retire? Are they looking to just transition their clients immediately? So some of it is sort of that intangible, if you will, in how they transition. Are they looking for immediate retirement or not? And then as it relates to value, we're typically looking at the last three years of financials, tax returns, how much of their revenue is recurring versus project-based, how profitable is it, what types of metrics. So we look at some key performance indicators, KPIs around billing rates and realization, which is a term for us that talks about the percentage on a client that you can bill of the amount of time you spend on it. We look at how many hours the owners work because the more hours an owner works, the less appealing it is because that means you're going to have to really replace them. If they're really acting as a partner versus a somebody who's in the business, right? That famous comment about working on the business versus working in. If they're working in the business, then the value of the company is a little bit less than if they're working purely on it because we can support them and we can take it over much easier if they're just working on the business. Oh, well, yeah. I guess you've already mentioned so much that it's kind of get my head reeling as far as like, how many things do you do have to check the box on for you to just even get to the table to acquire <laughs> one, right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's an amazing list. There's a lot of things that have to tick the box. But to me, they could all tick the box. But if culture doesn't, we don't go any farther. We'll talk about that in a second. But I'm just even thinking, I mean, what's the like percentage of that people reply to you and then that you get to the table and have to go through all these things? Because I do think it's pretty smart for you to, at least the people who want to sell their firm to you, most of them probably have enough money that they're happy that you're really looking for that lifestyle for them and making sure that matches up. And I'm sure they really appreciate that because that's what they're more concerned with at that point in their life because most of them, I imagine, are a little bit older as far as the accounting companies. Yeah, that's true. So how many do we have to go through? I'll be honest, it's typically, we look at 10 and that could be an hour's discussion with the other CPA, like the seller, if you will. We'll typically look at 10 to get to maybe two to three that we have more in-depth discussions to get to one deal. It's a numbers game. It absolutely is. And that's putting ourselves out there, having discussions, being transparent. We're very open and honest about the process, but we'll have lunch with somebody for an hour and afterwards realize they're not a fit. Before we even waste their time on financials or any deep dive on the numbers, we'll say, you know, I think from what you're describing and where we are, you're probably not going to be a fit. But we also have other people that maybe are. So let us refer you to X, Y, or Z accounting firm who might be a better fit for you. And actually, it doesn't seem that bad as far as like percentage wise, as far as getting down to it, because I'm glad you said that there's one interview that we had that I remember that one of our guests, that was like one of his quotes. And I 100% agree with it. It's always a numbers game, especially since you're an accountant, right? <laughs> you know, it really is like, like all those mailers you send out or whatever. If you only send out 10 mailers, then maybe you're getting none back. If you're sending out 100, 200, whatever, if you're talking to enough people, that's how you get to the end goal of you acquiring another accounting firm to grow your company. 
Yes. So you were talking about culture. So do you want to mention that a little bit more? Have you made any mistakes with this culture before and what happened and what are you looking for now because of it? Yeah, absolutely. We made a mistake. I wouldn't necessarily reverse it because it helped us get to a critical mass at the time. But about 12 years ago, we made a mistake in that we didn't spend enough time understanding the culture of the firm that we acquired. It was totally different. They were, I'll say, a quote unquote, you know, sweatshop. They really worked their people really hard. They didn't pay what they should have. They undervalued their human capital, if you will. And that was not the route that we go. That was a challenge for probably after the deal, that was probably a challenge for a year or two. And almost all of those people turned over in the first 24 months by our choice or by theirs, because they really didn't fit in culturally with our organization. And today we focus much more on that upfront. In that initial one hour discussion, I can get a feel for somebody's culture over lunch pretty quickly because we're transparent. We are very honest. We take care of our people. We look at providing all the benefits we possibly can. We value our clients. and we're focused on growth. So to the extent we get somebody who doesn't fit those sort of things, it really causes some misalignment of values. Well, can we dive into that a little bit deeper? I mean, when you're talking about that, I was I think that you were like the savior coming in with the accounting, if you're able to switch your culture or not. When you said all these people were turning over still and you had to get rid of them, was it the actual accounts? Or I would think it would be kind of the managers or the guy in charge of the company that you're acquiring. It was all of them. It really was. Because what I find, and I'm sure you've seen this before, if the owner of any business, they tend to hire what they want. You get a whole bunch of people who feel, look, and act like the owner, especially in small to mid-sized companies. That breeds the culture. And the person that we acquired retired immediately, and we didn't necessarily align with their philosophies. But right after we realized that everybody on their team was basically the same. Mm -hmm. But just more dictatorial and yes, more. This is less authority to make decisions on your own and more top down autocratic decision making, which is not the way we roll. We definitely allow people to have flexibility and freedom within a decision making framework. And that was not the case here. And then second, they didn't necessarily try to hire the best talent. They tried to pay the least amount of money they could to their staff, which then caused a whole management versus employee friction. How do you change that? In that case, we really couldn't. We had many, many one-on-ones with these people. We had very open discussions as a group about our philosophies and where we were headed. But these people had worked with the ex-owner for, in some cases, 20 years, and they just couldn't get their arms around it. That's who they were at this point. They really couldn't change, if you will. Yeah, because I know you said there was a lot of turnover, but I'm thinking that like you said there was a turnover and you're able to switch all these people over. I would think even bringing the new people in, if they see the old people and they act a certain way, whether they're not open to ideas of changing stuff, I imagine that's my bit of what's going on as well. It's like even the new people you bring in, you might be worried that they're going to fall underneath this culture, I would think. For sure. Yeah. And that's why we tried to make as many changes as we could within that first 24 months. We definitely, to your point, we didn't want any of, we had, you know, sort of two sets, right? The historic team that we have built versus this smaller group of people that came on and weren't a culture fit. So we wanted to make sure that anybody we hired aligned more with our historic culture than the group that we had acquired. We made sure to be as transparent in the interviewing process, in the onboarding process, and talk about what we wanted from our firm and where we were headed. And then to the extent it ever came up, which it did sometimes about like, hey, what about X, Y, or Z person? And, and we would say, look, we're trying to have some frank one-on-one discussions and they're working on some things. 
But if they can't change, they know that it's a short-term solution. So yeah, you gave us somewhat of an example there. I mean, can we talk about this even more in detail? Because I could see this being a big issue. You're trying to switch everything and it sounds like fast, but 24 months is still like a long time. <laughs> I would still be worried that, hey, okay, I finally found this dream accountant that I wanted in this area. Right. And then I'm just worried that he's going to get suckered into this other culture that maybe there are a lot of older people who won't switch or thinking dictatorially different. Like what else could you do to make sure that this easily was like smoothed out? Because again, this could happen by just hiring one bad person in a company, much less like a mergers and acquisition area. Yes. Some of the other things we try to do is when we hire new people, we try to have them seated in the areas where the, I'll say the good culture fits. Were. Yeah. I could see that. We had their direct reports be the people that were the good culture. We have coaching in our business. And so quarterly, you meet with your coach. We had all the coaches be from the good culture. I mean, all of those things, we tried to separate as much as you could, the good from the bad. And at the same time, we couldn't react too fast, at least in our minds. And I wouldn't necessarily change it either today. We couldn't react too fast because the old culture, if you will, still had a lot of client relationships. And so we had to transition those relationships to our firm rather than if they left immediately, let's say they left on day one, just as an extreme case, how many of those clients might we have lost that would have really hurt us a lot? Maybe 90 to 100% if they're those clients. So I definitely understand like you're into a kind of bad scenario because again, you don't want to cut all these people off if they have all the clients and then the valuation of the whole business is, could have been basically zero versus you bringing in the new culture and trying to fit that in. That seems like one learning experience. I guess you at least had a few years in, right? And what time frame was this? 2007, really. So that was one obstacle. Were there any others around this area of time as you're growing your company? Yeah, I would say in 2009, we had an unfortunate incident, which was my business partner at the time, one of my business partners, because at this time I had taken on partners, had a health issue and really was gone from the business for the better part of 18 months. And that was a real challenge. He was a mentor to me. He was about 25 years older than me. And he was somebody that I looked up to and really provided a lot of credibility to our business in the late 2000s. And he ended up having to go to Johns Hopkins for an extended amount of time. And so picking up pieces, if you will, and resetting our business and putting some other leadership in place was a real struggle. While at the same time, at that point, I was dealing with a young family. My wife and I had had two kids at that time in the last couple of years. And so dealing with a young family and a business partnership that was not going as strong because of an illness was a real long overhaul of the business. Yeah, that's something we don't think of, right? I imagine when you're doing it that, hey, you have a partner or maybe it's one of your top workers, right? That have a health problem. Didn't really account for that, did we? Yeah, you can't really predict those health scares. And it's so extreme, you know, really was gone completely besides just communicating with me, maybe on a every two to three weeks, we would have a 15 minute conversation or a text message or something like that it was really MIA. It kind of stinks because maybe in your head, when he had come on, you're very hopeful as a mentor. And then there's another challenge that's presented that no one can really think of at that point in time because you're already focusing on so many other things that obviously is a challenge for you to step up and have to deal with that. Can you talk to us about your personal life, like how this was going? I mean, you're working with your wife. It sounds like you had children at this point in time. Yep. So my wife worked with us from 2004 through the end of 2006. So the first three years of our business, she was a huge part of it and then stepped away to raise our family. She still worked, but just not directly with our business. She started some different opportunities. She became more of an external controller for a couple of companies and did that semi part-time. It was really more full-time, but, <laughs> yeah, right. but family was good. We had three girls now, but we had two kids during this time. And it was really, I guess, as the business was growing, so was my family and all the changes that were happening. And fortunately, 
a very supportive family as I was building a business that required a lot of my time, really up until about 2009 or 10, required a significant percentage of my time. To your comment earlier, work-life balance was a term that was not really used in my home life for those few years. So is it basically up till what, six or seven years into the business where you're able to try to achieve more of that versus working all the time? Yeah, it was probably 2009 or 10. So it's probably six years into the business before it really started to tweak and change drastically. And then over the last few years, it's gotten even better. But certainly at those early stages, if you want to have a scalable business, this isn't just accounting, but if you want to have a scalable business, I think it takes a lot of effort in the beginning to be able to reap the rewards later. That's why we interview all different type of entrepreneurs. And that's why I'm like really interested in this mergers and acquisition piece, because I imagine any entrepreneurs listen, maybe they do have one or two of those maybe along their path. And to your point, in the beginning, you have to do everything, which is a blessing and curse. Maybe it seems more of a curse at the time, but it's like you get to understand the obstacles that they have to go through, but you have to do that at the beginning because if you don't understand at least the basics of it, then how are you going to hire for it? That's right. I think that was the blessing to your point was because I had done everything. It helped me understand what we needed when. So it sounded like you were working about 60 or 70 hours a week for those first six years, at least. I would say that's probably, certainly there may have been weeks when it was less, but on average across the whole year, because there was some weeks <laughs> during our busy time, which is right. January through April, that they were 110 hour weeks. Yeah. I know that's when I don't get a hold of my accountant is during that time. <laughs> you know, I was like, yeah, we'll do another extension. I'll wait till you're less full so we can talk about this later. But yeah, I mean, putting in those hours and grinding, like, what were you learning? I don't know if like, at that point in your life, you're in your young 30s, right? At the six or seven year yep. where you thought you'd be? Because I would be impressed at that point in time of being able to grow at that rate. Yeah, I think it was probably 2009 when I realized, or 2008, maybe late 2008, early 2009, when I realized what we could become. I think 2004 through 2007 or eight, I really thought we'd be a 15 person company at our peak, I'll say, right? Like that sort of was where I thought we'd grow to, but we grew there so fast. Then I started to realize that there was a lot more opportunity in this small to mid-size accounting space than I realized. There's just, it's an underserved market, meaning there's plenty of people who serve it, but they might not be serving it the way that we like to serve it from a full client perspective and all the services that these clients need and want. And so that's when I realized, okay, we've really got the opportunity to scale this thing and really take off with some growth and help our clients in significant ways. You know, in that 2009 and 10, it was definitely sort of a turning 30 in 2009. It was definitely something where I thought, wow, five or six years ago, I'm not sure I would have thought that we'd have built a business this size, this fast. What differentiated you more? Like, I don't know if it stayed the same from the day you opened to when you were in your young 30s. What made your accounting firm different? I think it was a combination of things. I think it was first that we would generally outwork anybody, meaning we'd work harder for our clients. We were making sure that lots of small accounting firms, not the big four, but lots of the small ones tend to say, I can't get to that now, or they don't return phone calls. I mean, it really is as simple as returning phone calls the same day, replying to emails rapidly. If you looked at my inbox this morning, for instance, you would have seen I only had three unreplied messages. I think that those fundamentals of client service are not done very often in small firms. People get lackadaisical and rest on their laurels, if you will. That was one of the big differentiators. The other differentiator was that we were trying to be more than your tax preparer. We were trying to be your business advisor. You know, if you wanted to outsource your accounting, we offered that. If you wanted audited financials for your bank, we offered that. We had a bunch of different services in those early years that firms our size didn't necessarily 
focus on or try to promote to their clients as a way to help their clients. That's one of the advantages, at least you understood that at the beginning, I guess, you know, you can do whatever you want if you're in your own business, but if you want to stand out doing those little things, like you're saying out work and just returning stuff as fast as you can, at least you're being quicker or faster than some of the other companies. And that would make you stand out than some of the other accounting firms. Yes, absolutely. Big differentiator in those early years. And so you said around the young 30 mark that you were able to hopefully let off a little workload and focus, maybe balance things out a little bit more. Was there a reason why you wanted to do that? Or you just, did you get tired at this point from working so much? Or was there anything else that kind of made you have a change in work lifestyle, if you will? It was really just getting to a size that we could afford to have the key people in the key places. So instead of doing, we were joking earlier about all the things you do as an early startup entrepreneur, instead of having to do those, let's say 50 things, now I got to do about 10 things. And so that took a lot of things off my plate, number one. The second thing was around that time, my oldest child started to get into basic micro soccer and t-ball and stuff like that. And so started doing a lot of coaching. When you have to start coaching at, let's say, 5 p.m., you sort of find a way to get the work done and also say no to the other things when you prioritize them. Hey, everyone. I want to take a minute to talk to you about Square Payroll. These are the same guys and gals who created the Square Reader. You know, the little white card reader that helps retail stores and restaurants accept credit cards. They're one of the most trusted brands in small business. That's why I was so excited when they contacted me about their new payroll product. Just like they made it easy to accept credit card payments, Square is now making it easy to pay your team and your taxes, no matter what kind of business you run. Square Payroll automates your tax withholding and payments at no extra cost. So you know they're always calculated and filed correctly. Even better, they just launched the new payroll app. So you can run payroll from anywhere, anytime. For just 29 bucks a month and $5 per employee, that's the best payroll deal I could find for any small business. So if you'd rather spend your time focused on generating revenue instead of studying the federal tax handbook and you'd like to support the show, then go check out the app by searching Square Payroll in the Apple iTunes or Google Play App Store. Or better yet, to make sure they know you heard the ad here, then go check them out by directly going to this link millionaire-interviews.com forward slash square. For your listening pleasure, we've also included that link in the show notes of your podcast app. So go check it out below. Again, that's millionaire-interviews.com forward slash square. What happened as you started being able to pull back from working as much? Because one of the only things that I might have been worried about is like, it's awesome that you have people to offload some of the work on. But then do you feel guilty sometimes like that? You're like, I feel like I need to work. But maybe having a child at that point, I imagine that I'd feel like, oh, well, I need to be at that t-ball thing more, right? Yeah, I didn't. Fortunately, I didn't feel too guilty because I had put in so much work for years, number one. And then number two, I've trusted in the people to get their stuff done. And so it allowed them freedom and flexibility while at the same time holding them accountable. I didn't feel guilty necessarily, but the side benefit was when I stopped working as much, I started working more on the business and growth then exploded even faster. So I came up with earlier in the conversation you and I were talking about when we get away from work, sometimes our best ideas come out and to me, that's what started to happen. More and more ideas came out 
and more and more growth opportunities came out from not being in, I'll say, the weeds on a day-to-day basis and being able to step away and spend time thinking about the business allowed us then to just kind of grow exponentially as from, you know, 2009, we did, let's say about 1.6 million. We were on a path to do about two and a half million that next year. And from there to now, we're now going to do 10 and a half million this year. So the growth has become almost exponential along that path because of the ideas that I can generate outside of being in the business. Yeah. I mean, that's perfect. Yeah. Cause we were talking about that right before I was like press record about going away for a little while. And yeah, again, it's like another transition. At least you understood that. I think some, maybe some people get stuck in it all the time, but eventually once you start unloading one thing off at a time, you have the ability to have more creativity, I guess, in your mind versus just being logged in and looking at debits and credits, right? Yeah, for sure. I travel a decent amount and my team always jokes that they know when I'm on a plane because my best idea thinking comes if you're on a plane to Europe or Africa or South America or Asia or wherever, and you're on these eight to 12 hour flights, assuming you're not sleeping, you can get a lot of really good thinking done. And so that's what happens lots of times. And so I get off these planes and my team gets a summary email of all these great ideas I had. <laughs> no, that's absolutely because I mean, remember on my honeymoon, that's when I came up with some of my marketing ideas for the podcast that have helped extremely like a massive amount. But if I was at home working, I would have been probably working more in the business and not like have that mindset where I have to be on a 16 hour flight. You know, <laughs> I've got plenty of like you were saying, plenty of time to kind of brainstorm and like, what if we did this? Or what if we did that? That would help with growth. And kind of speaking of that, you were talking about didn't you just come back from Africa? Aren't you quite the traveler? I was. I just came back from Africa about seven days ago, was in Africa for 10 days. I travel a decent amount for a nonprofit board that I'm on. I travel personally as well, but I'm on a nonprofit board called the Entrepreneurs Organization, and it's a three and a half year term, and I've got a little bit less than a year to go, but it requires me to travel about eight to 12 weeks a year to all sorts of different places to help entrepreneurs across the globe. Well, what have you learned from doing that? The biggest thing I've learned, I would say, is cultural decision-making. So the board that I'm on has 11 people from across the globe. We have people from Hong Kong, the Philippines, Malaysia, Costa Rica, and Europe, and some from North America. And what I would say is that the cultural differences in how we go about the process of making a decision, because we're making big decisions for the organization that we're a part of, and the discussions that happen are incredible rich. And I've learned a lot about other countries and the way they're raised and how they get to a decision point. And then second thing that I've learned a lot is we may have, so we were in Africa, I was in Cape Town and we had three full days of meetings. And for those three days ahead of time, we had the agenda and all of the materials ahead of time. It's required to be there seven days in advance. So that you have time to read. It's 250 to 300 pages of reading in advance of these meetings. So you have to come really prepared because we may talk about a topic for five minutes and then get to a vote, but you better have read all the material, understand the issues. And if you've got a specific issue that you need to have addressed ahead of time, you better have a conversation with somebody ahead of time. And so to me, that's really helped us run the firm better because when we have our partner meetings a couple times a year, I've taken that back and built out bigger agendas, allowed more advanced prep time and provided a lot of material now for the last couple of years. So we've run our internal meetings much better. Can you give us an example of before and after, like before you joined the board, what you would do and then afterwards, like a little bit more in detail? Yeah. So before joining this board, I would provide an agenda, usually a week in advance, but maybe not even quite, maybe three days with no backup material. Now, I may have had the backup material or I had the ideas in my mind, but I didn't provide it at all. And then I'd come with maybe printouts and start sharing it right there. And 
the issue with that is some people need to have advanced prep. Other people think great on their feet. Some people need to read it, comprehend, think about it, and come with some discussion points. And that really hampered us as a firm because those people who are more the think about it people really couldn't participate in the meeting, which really hurt because you have great minds in that room who are not able to share their thoughts. And so now it's almost 10 days in advance and anywhere from 50 to 100 pages. We have our next meeting in a little bit less than two months. And I've already got about 75 pages put together of material for the team to read in advance. So it's things like that that really allow them to come more prepared. We get through things faster. So our meetings now are usually actually about 70 or 80 percent compared to what they used to be. And they're more productive. It does make sense what you're saying, because I could understand that sometimes I'm like, well, if I would have known the points going into the meeting or if, if I would have gave my employees or contractors probably a week's notice, well, maybe they're just working three or four days beforehand and don't have time to read it. But if I would have given it to them a week ahead of time, they could have found time like a, when they want some dead time to be able to read that. But specifically, that makes sense to me. But what are you preparing for them and making sure that everything stays on point when you have the actual meeting? Yep. The things that are prepared ahead of time are obviously easy things like our financial statements. And then but we do now a six-year trend analysis on all of our key performance indicators. So that's new. It allows people to see where we've been since 2012 and where we're headed. I do a write-up on all of our goals. So we have annual goal setting process. I do a write-up of where we stand on all of those so that people can read through, hey, we're not going to accomplish this one or we're way ahead of this one. We also, for instance, on my flight to Africa, I read a 400-page book. It was called The Perfect Accounting Firm. And of that, I don't think my partner group needs to read 400 pages, but there are some highlighted sections. So I literally ripped out the pages, highlighted, and had my administrative assistant put together a package that's about 40 pages of highlighted material for people to expand their brain. So it's really around challenging them to think differently. And so those 40 pages are designed to help them think outside the box, think about other creative ways we can grow the firm, think about ways we can serve clients better, those sorts of things. And as an example, the types of material that we're putting together in advance. Did you write that book? I did not. I have written a book. It wasn't that one. <laughs> I know. That's why I was about to segue twice, man. I was going to make this good. So yeah, tell us about the book you did write. Yeah, I wrote a book a handful of years ago on mergers and acquisitions called Cracking the Code. And I did that because as we were growing and our clients were growing, some of them through acquisitions, I realized there wasn't any material out there on how to buy a small business. And so there's lots of material on how to sell and how to build to sell and how to build value and how to get the most out of an exit. You can Google that and or look on Amazon and there's probably 2000 books on that but there was no books on how to do acquisitions in the small business space. I definitely agree with you because everyone knows about all these like, okay, I'm supposed to have all these processes in place and I'll do all this. But that's why I got excited and then brought it up again in the beginning. I had it down in my notes to say this. It's just like what made your entrepreneurial journey different is that you did all these mergers and acquisitions. Maybe a company goes through that once or twice, but that's a big deal whenever you're able to do it. I know you've given us a lot of tidbits on it, especially the culture fit. Is there anything else that if we wanted to pick that book up that is in there that we could kind of learn a little bit more about? I think the other things is the strategy around whether it makes sense to grow through acquisition. And it's about timing for you. I think the other thing that's in the book that would be helpful is there's a lot on there on how to finance deals. People don't realize how easy it is and how little it costs to buy a business that is already profitable. If you want to buy a business that's losing money or something like that, or if you want startup capital, we all know that that's really challenging. If you want to buy a business that's profitable, that's already in existence, it's really not much harder than buying a house, which is something that people just do not know. 
I didn't even think about that until you said it. And there's a lot of different strategies as far as like financially being able to work them into the deal, right? If you're going to acquire another accounting firm or let's say, can we use a different suggestion? I don't know if you went through a different type of company in your book as far as like merging and acquisitions. As an example, outside of my core accounting business, my wife and I own three gyms we've acquired. Sorry, we now own two. We sold two. We owned four gyms that we've acquired that we didn't start up. Starting in 2014, we started acquiring gyms. We've just made an offer on a third. Again, that model works in that space too. I mean, there is not many spaces I've seen where it doesn't work. Construction may be the example where it doesn't, but short of that, I've seen the, the small business acquisition model work repeatedly for clients and for ourselves. Again, because it's all basic kind of like accounting after you understand the numbers, but then it's all the other little things that really make that difference, like you were saying, the culture. But how did you decide to go ahead and acquire some gyms? I mean, do you already have a six pack and you wanted to work on that or what? <laughs> you know, my wife was looking to do something different. She was a controller for a company and was looking really to get out of the accounting profession. She wanted to do something totally different, wanted to do her own thing. We started looking at what made sense. What was she passionate about? She's run a bunch of marathons. She's a division one athlete and wanted to see how she could put some of these other passions to use because I'm sure you've long since discovered this, especially on different podcasts. If you're not passionate about what you do, it's really hard to wake up every day. You've got to be passionate. So we started looking and we found opportunities in the gym space. Then we started looking at very specific ones. And we knew that for us, starting from scratch was something that we didn't want to do. And so then we started looking at what might be for sale. And that's how we stumbled upon this process. Since we already are very familiar with mergers and acquisitions, given we've done it so many times, it seemed to make a lot of sense to get into the gym business that way too. It definitely makes sense. And it's good that she was able to figure that out. I kind of lost my passion for what I was doing for a little while. And so that's where I wanted to do something else. And no matter what, even if you're good at it or have a background in it. If you start losing like your energy and passion for it, for me, it almost felt like 25% of the energy that I used to have when I started off in the early years, you know? Mm -hmm. I can absolutely understand that. And it's something that a lot of people I think suffer with. And that's where I think mergers and acquisitions, if you have a W-2 job and you're working for a large bank, but you're not passionate, but you're looking to do something else and you're worried about how you're going to replace the income, looking at exploring other opportunities, but maybe not starting from scratch is something that is a realistic option. It definitely does. Because we did actually on one of the podcast episodes also talk about like buying an online business. So mm -hmm. that's like kind of in between where you're not starting something from scratch, but this is actually buying something that maybe like you're saying, a local gym or if you're accountant, acquiring another accountant firm. But speaking of like this passion, how have you been able to keep yours up as far as like as an accountant? I don't know like if there was ever during these years that you were doing it that you're like getting tired of it or if all these different acquisitions kind of gave you different ways to develop the company versus just having your own, like you said, maybe 10 person company that you grew over the last 20 years. Yeah, I think to your point, I'm passionate about a few things. I'm passionate about growth for myself, for clients, individually learning, right? Like I'm a thirst for learning kind of person. I love to read. I love to learn. I love to try and get better at anything. So I think for me, if we were a stagnant firm, not growing, not trying new things, that to me would be boredom and would be tough. And so the fact that we continue to look at different avenues to not just make money, but help clients in different service offerings, those are the things that get me energized every day is how can we get better? How can we improve? How can we grow? How can we help clients? 
And as long as we're doing that, I'm always passionate about our business. Just all the little nuances of buying these firms to me almost feel like that would re-energize me just even <laughs> thinking about it. You know, I mean, I don't know if that personally, if you were looking back, if you think that helped you too. Absolutely. Obviously all those things you said, but then whenever you're acquiring these companies, it's like all of them have different things that you have to tweak to try to make them fit and work a little bit better, right? Absolutely. At many times, people have called me a deal junkie because of how many deals I look at and you know the passion and excitement I have around them for ourselves and for clients. And so there's no doubt that some of the excitement of a merger or acquisition when I'm helping a client or when I'm helping our firm definitely pumps up the energy and gets me the creative juices flowing, if you will. We talked about like some of the smaller obstacles or maybe there are bigger obstacles too. I don't know if there's anything else that like significantly looking back that you had to overcome because obviously there were some obstacles, but it didn't seem like anything like major, your partner to be able to make a full recovery and come back and help y'all. He made a full recovery. He did not ever come back to our business. He had just been away too long and we had grown so much while he was gone, you know, in that 18 month period, let's call it. We had almost grown 70%. And so he really didn't even recognize the business we had become while at the same time, you know, my leadership style had to mature and grow up rapidly. He just decided not to come back to our business. Well, was there anything else if you're looking back that we might be able to learn from as far as the failures? Because I don't know necessarily that there really were any failures, it sounds like. I mean, there was definitely failures in some of the culture issues in the 2006 that we talked about. I wouldn't do it differently necessarily, but we definitely had to work really hard to align the cultures in 2006. And then definitely the partner issue with the illness. I mean, that was a long 18 months worrying about whether he would even live. I think that those things are learning lessons since then. We have been prepared for all of those, right? We have been prepared for what happens if somebody gets hurt, what happens if somebody steps away, how do we have a backup plan? Building, I'll call it fail-safe type systems within our business to allow people has really helped a lot so that if that happens again, we should be able to, obviously it's going to be a big bump in the road, but we should be able to roll along pretty smoothly. Right. It's the whole, like, if you're hit by a bus theory that if the whole business goes away, then is it really a business? And that's the, I guess, the idea of when you're even acquiring ones, when you say if the main accountant or if a family run business and the guy really does 90% of the accounting, you really aren't interested because it's not going to help you easily transition. That's going to be a lot more work, right? That's absolutely right. And you know, you say the bus, we always joke around here that it's the beer truck. We have a lot of breweries in Charlotte. So we always say it's if you get hit by the beer truck. <laughs> there you go. Well, looking back, and I guess even through your the entrepreneurs organization, I don't know if y'all extend or talk about like challenges and the biggest obstacles that entrepreneurs face and what they can do to keep from that happening. Is there anything else that as far as like lessons or advice that you want to leave us before we get off the call? I think it's a lot about planning and making sure you've got a roadmap. Number one, I think it's following passion. When you become dispassionate about whatever it is you're doing, you either have to find a way to energize it, or I think you should sell. Because what I have learned is that when our team members or when our clients aren't passionate about whatever they're doing, it starts to show to everyone. It starts to show to the people around them. It starts to you know fail in the business model, whatever it might be, it starts to really struggle. So to me, those are two really important keys. And then the third although not on my journey today yet, someday maybe, is never sell too late for those people. That's, I would say, is one of the biggest mistakes I've seen amongst clients and entrepreneurs is they hold on to their business too long. It ends up becoming stagnant or starting to decline rather than selling maybe a few years earlier. When it's growing is the time to sell, not when it's at its peak because everybody knows it's at its peak. 
And so the value declines significantly. Well, you were talking about that. You've seen that in some of the clients that you've dealt with as far as when their passion starts leaving? Yes, lots. So yeah, tell us how we're supposed to recognize that. Because sometimes when you're in the moment, it takes a while. I know it took me like, I don't know, maybe it took me like nine months or a year to realize like, I'm like, you're gonna, you're not working as hard as you used to. And then I come to the realization, it's just not as fun. You know, <laughs> like, why would I want to keep doing it if it's not <laughs> as fun? Like, you know, it's just annoying because the deal ratio of me getting something closed was just like up against the wall. I have to run through deals after deal after deal and not getting them done. It just get, got old to me. But like, what do you see? when you're talking to your clients, when their passion starts going? Because again, when you're in the moment, it's kind of hard to recognize sometimes. Yep, when I see it is a couple ways. One is when they're not trying to be creative about problem solving. It's, oh, this is the way it always is. That's one. The second is when you're having a discussion with them and it seems like everything's going wrong. It can't all be going wrong. It's because they're only seeing the negative side at this point. They can't see the positives. That to me tells me that they've already sort of lost interest because they're just staring at all the negatives and, oh, I can't do this and I can't do that. And then the third is your comment earlier, which is around how much they're actually working, right? If we have a client who's not growing and is working, I'll say four hours a day as an example, it's clearly because they've lost passion for their business. Now, if they were working four hours a day and the business was still growing, then they've built a really good business, but that's not most people. Most people you know, are still working the majority of the day in their business or on their business, and that's helping it grow. And the ones that aren't working that much and their business isn't growing, it's usually because they really don't feel like doing it. They're finding anything else they can to spend time on rather than work on their business. That's really important. So maybe if you're the person listening and you haven't really done some self-reflection and right and thinking that way, you're like, well, maybe I do fall into that trap. And it just takes a while to have that self-realization sometimes, I find out. I agree. You're talking about you travel a lot. Could you tell us about some of your favorite travel places in case we want to be a worldwide traveler like you? Sure. I would say I have three, three favorite places. One is Rio. We went to the Olympics as a family in 2016. And the people in Rio were very hospitable. I loved the city. It was right on the water. It's got mountains. It's got beaches culturally very fun. And then the other was I've been to New Zealand, Auckland, New Zealand. And it's one of the few places I've said the weirdest thing could happen. And, you know, maybe I could move there. You know, I can't necessarily forecast a day when that would happen, but any place in the world I've visited, I've now been to a little bit more than 40 countries. That would be a place that I could see. It's got beautiful landscape. The people are really nice. It's very expensive though, but the food's fantastic. And then the third would be just our trip to Africa, Cape Town and Johannesburg and spending time in Cape Town. It was a great city. It was a lot like Rio in that there are mountains right on the ocean, beautiful and certainly very, very, very culturally diverse. It's a, you know, it's a global city. I guess the IRS tax laws don't work in those other countries though. <laughs> I'd have to learn something new. That's for sure. Yeah, no, I understood on that. It's funny because I have talked to entrepreneurs that have had a frustration who live out of the country and having to deal with paying taxes still in the US. Do you have any insights on that? Yeah, the IRS, I don't have a lot of insights in the fact that the IRS wants their money, whether you think they should or not, basically. Right, <laughs> so, right. I don't want to damage your business at all. You don't have to say much more, but I dealt with some that traveling and they're like, wow, I still have to pay my taxes in the US, even though I haven't lived there for 20 years. <laughs> yep. The price of freedom. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. We really appreciate it. If somebody else wanted to reach out and say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach you? Email is probably the best. It's John, J-O-H-N, Bly, B-L-Y, at L-B-A-H-S.com. 
And your book real quick, if you want to give it one more plug, if people want to learn about mergers and acquisitions, where can they get in? What's it called again? Sure. You can find the book on our website or on Amazon. Our website is lbahs.com and it's Cracking the Code, an Entrepreneur's Guide to Growing Your Business Through Mergers and Acquisitions for Pennies on the Dollar. Well, thank you for joining us, John. Thank you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks for tuning in to this awesome episode. Hope you enjoyed it. After careful deliberation, I've decided to release my top 10 episodes. So get out your pen and paper and write down these episode numbers. Episode 2 with Matt Gallant. Episode 11 with Eli Crane. Episode 24 with Jonathan Burlingham. Episode 32 with Adrian Salamunovich. And try episode 34 with Don DiCostanza. Episode 36 with Dan Fantasia. Episode 38 with Aaron Kraus. And try episode 39 with Luther Cyphers. And our last two episodes here. Episode 62 with Andrew Sykes. And episode 63 with Dan Cohen. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget we're a virtual family here at Millionaire Interviews. That means you, the listener, the guest, the editors, and the host. And so don't forget our... Hell, is a family model. Are you ready, Jerry? I'm ready. I just want to make sure you're ready, brother. Here it is. Share the podcast.